Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This is episode 99, and as I've been counting down to the 100th episode, I've been focusing on some of the people who were important in getting this podcast launched back in 2017. It helps, obviously, that they are fascinating in their own right. So this week's guest is Reagan Hales. Reagan is the Vice President of Business Development at the AEDC, the Amarillo Economic Development Corporation. When I decided to launch this podcast, I, I lined up sponsors for the first seven episodes before I had even recorded my first interview. The first four were sponsored by Estacar Companies, and last week I interviewed Corey Burns, the CEO of Estacar. Well, the next three episodes were sponsored by the AEDC which then went on to sponsor several other episodes after that. Well, Reagan was on board and supportive back when I was just trying to figure it out, when the podcast was only an idea. And I'm so grateful for her encouragement, for her support, you know, just personally and financially as as this got started. As a woman serving in a top executive position with a job that involves helping grow the business community in Amarillo. I think Reagan offers a really fascinating perspective that I think we need to hear. It's an honor to have her on the show. Here's Reagan Hales. Reagan Hales, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Well, good. I'm glad you're excited. Um, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you. You've been somebody who has been closely aligned with the podcast since the very beginning. And so I, I know you know the show, you know the goals, and sure. I've had you as a potential guest for almost two years now. So I'm glad that we finally connected and, and get to talk about you. Yeah. I still can't believe it's been two years. Well, I can't either. It's <laughs> It's been a fast two years, that's for sure. Um, so before we talk about the AEDC and the different things that you're involved with, I, sure. I'd just like to establish you in this area. So yep. tell me how you ended up in Amarillo in the first place. Well, I was born and raised here in Amarillo. My parents are both from Spearman, and my dad uh, came to Amarillo. My whole family came to Amarillo after he graduated from law school. So they moved here in their 20s. My brother and sister were pretty little. So I was born here, raised here, and I've been here. I was here all through high school. And then since I was the youngest of three by about 10 years, my brother and sister were quite a bit older. I was kind of the stubborn third child that wanted to go do my own thing, get as far away as I could. Um, So in high school, I applied to all these colleges that were you know, a million miles away from Amarillo in New York and California and Boston. And my dad at the time, he was like, you know, if you get into those colleges, I'll help you go, you know, just apply. Let's see what happens. And I don't think he expected me to get into, into a single one of them. Of course, I got into all of them. And so I think he kind of panicked. Yeah. Because I was like, okay, I'm going to move to Boston and here we go. And he said, nah, change my mind. You have to stay in Texas. And so I was just thinking, you know, where's the furthest I can go from Amarillo? I want to do my own thing. And so I went to school in Austin, um, studied business there, kind of to make my dad happy that because he wanted me to be a banker or a lawyer or something. And then after I graduated from UT, I moved to Atlanta when I was 21. Didn't know Seoul, didn't know anything about Atlanta. I just knew I wanted to go somewhere else and do something different. Okay. Didn't want to move to Dallas, didn't want to move to Houston. I still just kind of wanted to plot my own course. So I 
showed up in Atlanta. I actually, on my resume, I said I lived in Atlanta. Totally lied on my resume. But I thought that would give me a leg up. And it kind of did, except I got the job offer. And the guy that offered me the job was like, okay, we need you to start in two weeks. And of course, I don't live there. I'm right. like fresh out of college. And I hung up the phone. I looked at my mom and I said, mom, I have to move to Atlanta in two weeks. And she looked at me. Or I think her jaw hit the floor. I'm sure she probably said a few expletives. <laughs> but we loaded it up and moved out in two weeks wow, and made it, made it happen. happen. Yeah. What, what was that job? I was a, actually was a bond trader for Merrill Lynch. That first job, I was like a sales assistant for someone that traded equities, traded stocks. And then I got my brokerage license within just a couple of months. And someone had retired on their bond desk and they had an open seat. And I was just kind of the warm body that was qualified. And they stuck me in that chair and threw some Bloomberg terminals and phones in front of me and said, go. Wow. And I was terrified. Yeah. Totally terrified. Because you, I mean, you can learn all about that in college classes. No, you don't but, learn I mean, any of yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all like theoretical and yes. then you're, you're put in front of a no. computer. Oh my gosh. You don't learn any of it in college, which, you know, is a whole other thing. But, you know, I had studied how to price a bond or, you know, how to value a company, but I didn't know how to have two phones in my ears and inner trades. And, you know, when, I, so I was 21 straight out of Texas and the people that I talked to on the phone were all these bond traders from the pit in New York. And within the first month or so that I would be on the phone with them, they were like, listen, girl, you've got to drop this accent. You got to talk faster because this just isn't going to work. Wow. So now I'm terrified at how I talk. And I also have to reiterate all the trades properly and not screw it up because we were moving millions and millions of dollars in trades. And so I was just terrified for six months. And, but Loved it at the same time because I had all of this, you know, real world information right at my fingertips. This was 2000 and, you know, you had your, you knew everything that was happening all around the world because you were just at the pulse of the market. So I loved it. Was that something like that you wanted to do? I mean, coming out of college or was it just kind of the first thing? No, not at all. I mean, you know, I was one of those kids at business school at Texas that in the summers I was a counselor at Canacuck. You know, I went to the, Branson in the summer and hung out with 12 year old girls where all my other counterparts were doing internships at Deloitte. And right. Accenture. So you weren't one of those high achieving. No, no, I was probably, and you know, I minored in Italian. I mean, I was such the antithesis of a business student, but you know, so no, it wasn't what I planned on doing. I just lucked into that job at Merrill Lynch and never thought I would trade $50 million bonds in a single minute. But I really liked it. And then I ended up doing sales in it, which I was pretty shy and introverted my whole life. And so to get on a phone call with someone that ran a major investment fund, and here I am selling to people, I never would have thought I'd enjoyed it, but I loved it because I just like people, you know, and at the end of the day, I would forget that this was Home Depot or Lowe's. That was my client. It was just Steve. And I was asking him how his holiday went. So I lo- I mean I loved that part of it. How long did that last in Atlanta? It was about two and a half years. So I was about two and a half years into it. I was doing really well and kind of the trajectory of that career, you have to go get your CFA, which is incredibly hard to get. And then I probably needed to move to New York and spend some time on the trading desk there. 
And at the time, you know, I looked around at the other women that were in that industry and fortunately or unfortunately, there's a stereotype to that industry for a reason. And sad to say from what I saw, a lot of it's kind of accurate. Okay. A lot of the women that were in my similar position, you know, they weren't married, didn't have kids. Like you just, that wasn't an option kind of. Anyone that was married was in kind of a support role just because there wasn't time for it. Sure. Any extra time you were in the office, you were with clients. And so I just knew that it wasn't what I wanted for myself long-term. And my boss at the time, and I'm 23. Right. You know, I have no wisdom whatsoever. But my boss at the time, he knew I was kind of at this place where they were asking me if I wanted to move to New York. And he goes, look, Reagan, if this isn't for you, you need to quit before the money's so good that you can't leave. No one's going to begrudge you for it, but this is just a choice you have to make. So May of that year, and this was after 2001 when the trade towers fell. Right. Like, that the whole industry was changing and I knew there was just a lot of things that were going to shake up. And so I walked into my boss and I said, all right, I'm quitting. And he said, well, what are you going to go do? And I said, I have no idea. (laughs) But the only thing I knew that I was going to do, my girlfriend and I, my best friend in Atlanta at the time, we took a month off and drove cross country. I think we drove 7,000 miles in a month and just had the best time of our lives. Much to my parents' demise or you know they weren't too happy about that yeah yeah but um I had money in my savings and just could take time off and then when I got back I kind of took a big pendulum swing and started working for a nonprofit. okay was it there in Atlanta it was it was for the American Heart Association okay and I covered the seven major counties that are all north of Atlanta and at the time they were some of the fastest growing areas of the country and so, you know, me and my Honda covered a lot of roads in North Georgia over that time period. And and I didn't know anything. It was all fundraising and development and event planning and outreach. And I'd never done that. I'd been a volunteer, but I'd never run that kind of stuff. And so I had to manage my budgets. I had to manage my marketing. I had to develop relationships with sponsors and vendors and volunteers and and it was a lot of work. I mean, I think about nonprofit professionals nowadays that have to raise their own money. And right. it is really, really hard because for every yes you get, you probably had 10 no's. And it's just hard to walk around and kind of ask for money. You hear a lot of stories about people who get burned out, you know, in the for-profit sphere and they move into nonprofit work. But there's a lot of stress involved in both of those. Sure. I mean, do you do you feel like that work compared to the bond trading that you were doing, maybe not the actual work, but in terms of the the pressure or mm-hmm. the fulfillment, I mean, any of those aspects? Yeah, I think it's just as hard. I mean, you know, I went to nonprofits because I had this kind of part of myself that really just wanted to help people. I think when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a nurse or a doctor and have that interaction with patients. That's why I spent summers at Canacuck instead mm-hmm. of at Deloitte. Um, so I thought when I went over to nonprofits, I was going to get that kind of fulfillment. But you really don't. You get it as a volunteer, but as the staff person, I mean, you're still running a business at the end of the day. It's dollars and cents and program development. And so you don't really get that part of it. I mean, you do kind of, I would get that when I would see how excited my volunteers got. And we had some people that would talk to us about their son that got a heart transplant and what the research meant that we sponsored. So you would see some of it, but 
not as much as I thought you would in that space, but it taught me so much because it's really kind of like being an entrepreneur, at least that type of job was because you were master and commander of every aspect of the organization in those areas. So it was a lot of work, but I met some neat people, really did some great stuff. And what I learned there was really kind of my first foray into marketing because instead of walking around to these companies saying, hey, can you give us some money from your charitable donations? It was, you know what, you have 10 times as much money in your marketing budget as you do your charitable donation Mm -hmm. budget. How can the Heart Association be an extension of your marketing division? And when you changed it, they were like, oh, okay. And and that was really before you had a lot of like philanthropic um, social enterprise type of marketing and business development like you do now. But once we learned how to tap into that, I mean, we just tripled the money that we would Hmm. raise. And so then you really started looking at it from a business strategy perspective. You ended up in Atlanta sort of by accident um, and then, you know, had a big career shift in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I mean, did, was there a point where you thought, okay, this is my place. I'm based here in Atlanta. Or did you ever feel like that, uh, like you missed Amarillo or there's something that, that didn't feel quite permanent about being there? I mean, I fell in love with Atlanta, okay. and I had never been there before I took a job. I mean, I had no idea. Because um, it's a it's much a, bigger oh. place, even even than Austin. Oh, is. yeah. It's massive. But I fell in love with it, loved the South, met great, great friends there, uh, just really loved the city. And my brother lived at the time. He was in Washington. My sister at the time, I think, was living in New York. And then my parents are back here. So we were all pretty spread out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it just kind of felt like that was going to be how our family was dispersed. Then I would come back to see my parents or come back for a wedding. You know, we were in that phase where you had to go to a wedding every weekend. But I never really thought I would come back here whatsoever. Um, It wasn't until I met my husband while I was in Atlanta and he was in the military. And then just kind of through a series of events, he ended up getting out of the military for an injury and didn't know for sure what he was going to do and applied to law school and got a terrific scholarship from Texas Tech. So that's how we ended up back in Texas. But I never thought I'd come back here. What What did you do after that point? So when he came to law school at Texas Tech, we had two kids. Mm-hmm. I had been a stay-at-home mom for a while. So it was like, okay, well, you're going to go to law school. I'm going to go back to work. So I powered through the initial mom guilt because I just – I had always thought I was going to be the stay-at-home mom, and my mom was a great mom. You know, I loved, I wanted to give that to my kids, but I knew I needed to go back to work to get us through. So I got a job at the Office of Commercialization at Texas Tech. Didn't really know anything. It was just a job, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. I was like, we'll be here for three years. We just got to do what we got to do, and then we'll see what happens. And um, within that job, I think I'd been there two or three months and we got a call from the chancellor's office and they asked us to work on this big project. And they kind of called us into the administration building and they said, Hey, we need you to go after some money in the federal budget that Obama's administration was putting through. And we're like, okay. And they said, it's about wind energy. And so you need, you guys need to put together this grant. You're going to go after wind energy. Go. I mean, I mean, it was, and we had to like turn it around in Mm -hmm. no time. And I remember my boss and I looked at each other and we said, do you know anything about wind energy? I don't know anything about wind energy. Um, You know, and this was 2009. So it was really as wind farms were being developed and the peak of renewable energy development. And so we just kind of had a crash course in mechanical engineering and wind engineering and 
you know, learn all these companies and we got through it and we're getting ready to put our application in. And they said, well, that money's been struck from Obama's budget. Now you need to go after money from the state. Like, oh my gosh. So pivot again. And then, so it was just this long, long project of put something together, change, pivot. You need to meet people. You need to do this. And a lot of work, but we ended up getting it submitted. We got funded through the state for some renewable energy project money and, you know, some of that we I can see out at Pantex, some mm-hmm. of the the turbines out at Pantex or turbines that we worked to try to get out there and some projects down in Lubbock. And it was it was a big lesson and you got to figure it out. Right. So it was great. You had worked in high pressure bond trading and then nonprofit and then <coughs> university setting. I mean, was was those are all very different, you know, yes. environments to work. Yeah. Do you feel like in that process you discovered okay this is this is the thing I'm good at this is this is the thread that kind of ties all these different places together? Yes, I did. You know, I think when people look at my resume, they're like, I mean, it's just kind of like a bag of Skittles; it's all over the place. But something I learned that I can look back at in college and realize, okay, this was my niche and I didn't know it. Um, you know, so I was a finance major. And hated finance. I yeah. actually hated numbers. I should have been a journalist or something because I love to write. But I would get on these, and everything was group project related. You know, it was Harvard Business School model. Everything's team based, and so we would get on these teams. And there were always the teams of the finance and accounting kids that were whizzes at numbers, but they hated writing or communicating. I mean, I had so many of my peers ask me to write their scholarship application right. essays or you know, I need you to do this, or I don't know how to write an essay for my English class. And so, but I could write and I could speak and present. So I would always find the teams that might have international students or really, really shy people. And I would get on their team and I'd say, look, you do all the number crunching. You put all this together. I'm going to sit and listen. And then when it comes presentation day, I'll do the presentation and I'll field the questions. And so, cause I was never afraid to get in front of an audience and field whatever came at right and so i learned that i can take really technical information and kind of whittle it down to something digestible for other people so i kind of learned how to relate to people bond trading um in the nonprofit world i learned how to take a mission and say maybe you don't have heart disease but this is how this mission applies to you right and then within the university setting i mean you have so many different types of people and you know, I might have a mechanical engineer that's working on one aspect of a project. And then I have another faculty member or someone from the private sector on a project. And I've got to somehow be the intermediary between all of these voices and digest it for everyone to make it one cohesive story. And so I think when I came to the EDC, that was kind of my niche. Okay. Um, and the people that recruited me, they said, look, we know you have this deep business background, but you're also a really good communicator and a great people person. Maybe would you ever consider doing that in a marketing role? And I'd never done marketing, never in my life would I've thought I would do marketing or would like it. But as I, if I slow down and look at it, that's really what I was doing was marketing and communications. What year did you come to Amarillo then with the EDC? So we moved up here in 2012 and I actually worked at the pharmacy school, the tech pharmacy school and was their assistant dean for finance and administration. So it was managing all of their budget, personnel, facilities, 
you know, it was a, it's a phenomenal institution over there. I wish people knew more about it. But that role for me, kind of being behind the computer and crunching numbers all day, it just wasn't right for me. And so I was actually going to go start my own company. I, had, I was working on a business plan. I had this whole vision. And I called a friend of mine that worked at the EDC. And I said, look, I need you to help me put this business plan together. And I'd called people and vetted the idea. But I still kind of wanted a plan. And so I think that was 2014. And um, at the time, there was a lot of activity within the EDC. And they just needed extra help. And I was burned out. I had three kids. And um, my husband was finally working full time. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll just take work part-time and take some time off and get mm-hmm. a breath. So I went to work for the EDC part-time in 2014, just going to kind of catch my breath. And then six months later, I was full-time okay. doing marketing. So that's five years ago. Yeah. So for people that don't really know what the AEDC does um, or the value that it provides for sure. this area, I mean, what what's your without getting really deep sure. into all the different economic development initiatives. But, I mean, tell me tell me what it does and why it's important here. Well, really, the reason it's important is anyone, you know, most people that listen remember the most recent recession in 2008. And when you're seeing headlines across the board of people losing their homes and losing their jobs and companies going under, I mean, it's just incredible devastation and that doesn't necessarily happen in a bubble. I mean, there's a lot of factors that can go into kind of creating situations of economic distress. And I hated economics in college, by the way, just to be honest, just to clarify that for everybody. But when you're in a community like Amarillo, I mean, Amarillo is kind of geographically isolated right. in a lot of ways. And we've kind of built our economy on our own. And so... If we were just an oil and gas community like we were in the 80s, um, when we go through these ebbs and flows with commodity numbers, when oil's cheap or you know, cattle prices are cheap, our community would be devastated. Right. Your friends and neighbors would be out of jobs. Because um, everything's connected yeah. to that industry. And it's not even just the oil producer or the cattle producer, because those people earn money that they go shop, they buy products, they go to restaurants, they you know buy cars. And so... When one industry kind of collapses, the ripple effect of where those people spend money ends up affecting everybody. So economic development is really just a a strategy to try to protect communities, states, countries from the ripple effect of those economic ups and downs. By diversifying it so that Mm -hmm. you're not attached too much to just one giant industry. So in the last recession, like we look at our numbers and when you compare Amarillo to most other communities, especially other communities outside of Texas, their economic numbers from wages and house prices. And um, I mean, those numbers were all over the map, you know, highs and lows and Amarillo's for better or worse, stays pretty level. Okay. I mean, admittedly, we don't have these huge booms in population and like Austin saw, you know, back in the early 2000s. But we also don't have huge depressions either. So we're, we kind of have been able to insulate ourselves from a lot of those um, ups and downs. So it's a great thing to be able to look back on those time periods and say, no, we've really been able to navigate it pretty well. I mean, people's home prices didn't drop too much here. Um, you know, you had some companies that probably lost employees, but not nearly like you saw in the rest of the country. How much of that 
can you can I mean can you say as the result of you know a diverse economy or something else? I mean, are, are there any factors that you identified? This is why we're sort of protected against that well, kind of thing. Well, I mean, part of it really, I mean, it is diversification, you know, and really economic development in the state of Texas came out of the '80s oil crisis because. Um, Amarillo wasn't the only community that was affected in Texas. I mean, that was statewide. Right. And and when the entire state doesn't earn the right time, you know, enough money, you can't support things like education and road development. So even back in the 80s, the legislators realized, like, look, we've got to do something. Um, and that's when the economic development statutes really came about. Okay. So it was statewide that people realized we needed to do this just because, you know, the state of Texas was built on oil and gas. And so if we didn't change that and we didn't diversify it, the entire state was going to go through this every time this happened. So, um, and what's kind of unique about Texas from an economic development perspective, because Texas is so big, they've given a lot of the power and economic development out to the cities. So each city, well, they have to kind of follow the state laws for how economic development has to work, they get to decide, you know, how much money they're going to award to a company to come in or what incentives look like to either companies that are local and growing or companies that want to come into town. In other states, all of that is managed at the governor's office. So uh, we actually get a lot more autonomy to decide what types of companies we want, how much we're willing you know, to provide them and incentives to come, which in Amarillo's favor is really, really great because because we have such a great sales tax base, yeah. we're able to be pretty aggressive okay. when trying to recruit. Compared something. to even some oh, of the other places yeah, in the state. I think, mm. Yeah, I think the last time we looked, the Amarillo had like the third or fourth largest economic development budget in the wow. state. Wow. Yeah. What I mean, just in your time with the ADC, what are a couple of success stories that you can identify? Sure. Well, you know, everyone looks at, at Bell as kind of the milestone and the biggest testament about economic development and where Bell is celebrating their 20th year in Amarillo right. here and having gotten to know a lot of the people that work out there and a lot of the stories. I mean, there's a guy, we actually did a video on him when I first started, um, Kyle Washburn, who was one of the very first employees to graduate out of the AC training program. Mm -hmm. And I think he said he was 19 at the time and didn't really have any money and didn't know what he was going to do. And now he's one of their senior managers out there and he's been with Bell since the beginning. And, you know, he's been able to create a life for his family. So that's pretty exciting. But, you know, from a recruitment perspective, we've brought in um, Gestamp Renewable Industries since I've been there. But, you know, recently we've done a lot of local expansion projects. Okay. And, which the businesses is, that kind of mm -hmm. grew up here instead yeah. of trying to bring outside businesses. Yeah, here. and and you know, there's a lot of dialogue about whether those are important or um, or if we should be investing in those the way we invest in companies we're trying to bring in. And what we say is our expansion project for a company that's here that's wanting to grow is some other community's attraction project. Hmm. So, like, when we did a project with Maxor Pharmacy, I mean, they're going to be adding hundreds of jobs, really well-paying jobs. Right. Well, someone else could have recruited them. Um, they could have gone to Chicago or they could have gone to another city. But because we saw their value and knew what they contributed to our community, we knew we wanted to keep them here. So we want to help them grow 
um, and we want them to stay here. We, all those families that already work there, we want them to stay in Amarillo. And we don't want another city to come in and steal sure. them away because that's what we do to cities. We go in and steal their companies. So, you know, in recent years, we've been able to do that more and more, these local expansion projects. And so to me, those are really exciting successes when you see your own companies growing and expanding I wanted to ask you a little about being a woman in business because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you kind of alluded to it being in the, you know, the, the trading office yeah. and that it, it, it was rare that, that you were a young woman exceeding there. And, you know, because you've been in so many different places from the corporate world to the university world, I mean, all of them in leadership roles, mm-hmm. have, um, have you ever felt like you were doing something that was a little bit different, you know, from what sure. other women were doing in this part of the world or that you were taking a path, maybe that, whether it's the mom guilt that you talk mm-hmm. about or, or any of that other stuff. I mean, has it ever felt like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go do this thing, yeah. you know, for women? And Yeah, no. <laughs> to answer the question, no. So when I went back to work, I mean, I felt terrible dropping my kids off at daycare. It was something I never thought I was going to have to do. But then when I started working, I realized how much I loved working. Yeah. I just did. And I've always been this kind of type A driven overachiever, not necessarily because I was trying to prove anything, but just because I like working, you know? And so the longer I worked, I realized, well, this is just my path, you know? It doesn't look like what my moms or my sisters did, or a lot of my friends were at stay at home moms at that time, but this is what I, this is what I do. And I liked it. And to be honest, at the time, it was hard, and I, I'd even say it's still hard sometimes because it's hard to find other working women that you can relate to. Um, I mean, I know like Amy Henderson, who's a commercial lender at A&B, she and I talk a lot of time because we're two full-time working moms, and you don't really have a lot of time to go meet other working moms because exactly. we go to work and then we come home and we do whatever we do. So it's kind of hard to meet other women, but... I never felt like I was trying to like lead some movement. I know there were times that I would step kind of pause and realize I was the only woman at a boardroom table. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, well, this is kind of crazy, but I wouldn't think about it for longer than 10 seconds. So, and I, I've, I never really had a lot of instances where I felt like I was being treated differently, um, which is great. I know a lot of women would say something differently. I mean, I remember when the Me Too movement came out. I mean, I have my own stories of, you know, kind of terrible things that happened, but I never really felt like I was leading a movement. I remember I was at a economic development conference, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago, and they were telling us to talk about our female heroes and, you know, who encourages us and motivates us to stay, to do business. And as corny as it sounded, I said, you know, it's really my daughter. You know, and I think she was seven or eight at the time. Um, and she's 11 now. But so often, like we go home and we tell our daughters, you know, you can go be anything you want to be, you can, you can be president, you can be a CEO, you can be whatever you want, or you can be a mom. But when we try to do those things for ourselves, a lot of times we either feel guilty about it, yeah. or we question ourselves. And so it was kind of a gut check to me as a mom. Like if I'm going to go home and tell my daughter that she can do all these things, well, I need to kind of listen to myself too. And so I realized that I was this mirror for my daughter and I wanted her to feel confident and able to go do anything she wanted. So a lot of times when I have those kind of like 
those gut check moments, um, I think about that. And this is this is a culture, and I'm speaking like regionally, where maybe you know this area there are fewer women mm-hmm. than men in those leadership roles. Sure. Um, where it's been it's been improving in other parts of the country, mm-hmm. New York, California, or Chicago, whatever. Um, do you do you feel like Amarillo is making more strides in that direction? I mean, do you, do you feel like there's been some improvements? Oh, I mean, look at our city council and our mayor. Okay. You know, I mean, look at everything Mayor Nelson's doing, and you've got Frida Powell and Elaine Hayes. And, I mean, we have a lot of women that are in senior positions. Do I wish there were more? Absolutely. Um, but I think some of that, I think some of the reason that maybe we don't see as many women in business is just it's hard to find some of the balance for it. And, you know, in Amarillo, trying to find places to take your kids for daycare or after school care. I mean, I remember when we moved up here trying to figure out where I wanted to put my three babies while I worked. I mean, that's hard. And there's not as many places here. I mean, I've talked with a lot of people about that. And um, there's just different items like that that kind of contribute to it. But what's funny is I have a lot of women that call me every week that are either small business owners or women that are starting nonprofits. And I think there's also a lot of nervousness and anxiety. I mean, these women call me and they say, I've got a lot of stupid questions and I'm, I don't know who else to ask. Cause I think there's a lot of fear. Um, you know, they go, I don't want to take this question to my banker or when I get across the table from an attorney, I don't want him to think I'm stupid. And I'm like, okay, you just have to stop, just stop. And so and I hate to see that anxiety in their eyes because these women are brilliant. Um, you know, I remember when I first started talking to um, the girls that run colorful closets, they were nervous and didn't really know where to start. And they said, you know, I've got all these stupid questions. And I'm like, just stop it. You've got a brilliant idea for an organization that's going to serve our community. Throw the word stupid out. Yeah. Nothing stupid. You know, don't be afraid. And so I think a lot of women are just hesitant to admit they don't know something. But, you know, I would tell all those women, you know, if you're nervous, I'm going to tell you there's a hundred men out there that also don't know those answers that have to ask the same questions. So don't feel like it's unique to women. That anxiety that women feel, is it something that is learned from them or is it something that maybe is kind of self-inflicted? I mean, do, Mm -hmm. do, do they learn to be intimidated or anxious in that kind of situation? I don't know. I mean, I know I've read a lot about women entrepreneurs and um, women in business. And I think a lot of times women kind of have this imposter syndrome more than men where you feel like you're going to show up to a meeting and everyone's going to go, what is she doing here? You know, they should not know what she's talking about. And that's more prevalent in women, I think, than men. Is that a larger societal cultural issue? Perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we've done a lot in the last 10, 20 years to kind of break some of that down, but I'm not sure necessarily what it is. I think, you know, I think in Amarillo, we're trying to do a lot to create better networks for women mm-hmm. to be able to meet other women in business. I mean, we've done events with the Enterprise Center and the Small Business Development Center. Um, to try to give women outlets to ask questions. But, you know, I'm not exactly sure what that one reason is that maybe women have a little bit more hesitancy to ask questions or to kind of do some of those things. 
Okay, so what advice would you give to a, a woman who has like entrepreneurial dreams or has some, you know, wants to do something in leadership or wants to try something in the business world? Is there something concrete that you could sort of tell her to, to think about this or, or go in this direction? The biggest piece of advice that I could give anybody is to find a mentor. Um, and maybe not even just one person, but to provide or build your own proverbial board of directors. Okay. Um, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I listen to a lot of kind of female driven podcasts. And one of them was saying, you know, build your own board of directors, find people that can give you advice from a lot of different phases. And a couple years ago when I was really kind of navigating my career and trying to figure out what I was going to do, I reached out to someone and I mean, quite bluntly said, look, I have questions. I need some guidance. Can you just meet me for coffee? And this woman who was really well known and had a hundred things going on was excited to do so. And we would meet and talk about um, different topics from business to life and and it really helped me kind of understand some perspective. Um, it helped me be accountable to, you know, trying to do what I was wanting to do professionally. And it just gave me a lot more confidence than had I tried to just navigate it on my own. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily like, you know, you need to to create a formal board or somebody to advise mm -hmm. you or anything like that, but just to have people that you can use right. as a sounding board to say, look, you've been here, here's something I'm going right. through. And I don't, you know, and I don't think you necessarily have to find a woman mentor. I think that helps for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I think it really helps your comfort level. But I had a former boss that was probably one of the best people I've ever worked for. And he and I have maintained this really great kind of mentor relationship through the years. And I can give him a call or shoot him a text and say, hey, how do I navigate this situation? What do I need to be doing? And, you know, he's been in the professional world for 40, 50 years. And he has a completely different experience than the woman that I asked to be my mentor. So I think you really just have to find, maybe it's anywhere from two to four key people that you are not afraid to say, look, this is, you know me through whatever experience, you know where I kind of want to go. You know maybe what my hiccups are, or my reservations, or maybe even what I'm capable of. How do I get from A to B? And I think... That, to me, is really the best thing anyone, male or female, but really female, could do to try to get into either a business or a leadership position. Um, I, I want to sort of make a transition here, and it's not a great segue sure. at all. But sure. <laughs> so we're, we're approaching the uh, 100th episode of this podcast, and you were one of the people, speaking of you know women in leadership, that, that were a real early champion of it. And in fact, I remember mm -hmm. meeting with you before I launched mm -hmm. and talking about the idea because uh, I had first talked to Corey Burns about it and she said, yeah, and you also ought to talk to Reagan at the mm -hmm. AEDC. And so you were, you were instrumental in kind of giving me the confidence sure. to, to get this started. I, I wanted to ask you, like thinking back to that time, why you were so passionate sure. or interested in the concept of a sure. show like this. And it's, what's funny is it's such an easy answer. So a few years ago, we did a campaign within um, the EDC. We partnered with Inc. Magazine and to really kind of show off what a small to mid-sized city could look like from an entrepreneurial perspective. And, you know, we were doing it to try to target maybe some faster growing companies mm -hmm. that were in other communities and we wanted to bring them here. And so we had a really long about two year content calendar where we wanted to tell stories of success and just 
anecdotal things from Amarillo and kind of paint a picture of why it was a good community for entrepreneurs. And so we brought in writers from New York and DC that were writing some of this material. And they said, look, we need you to line up the people and the stories, or we need you to introduce us to people. And so, you know, we set up a couple, three days worth of interviews and meetings for this team from New York to come in and meet with everyone. And these are people I knew and I knew their stories. I mean, I may didn't may not have known all of their stories, right. but over the three days, like you meet different people and hear what they're doing and hear about companies they've built or technologies they've built or nonprofits they've built. And you're just like, wow, I want to tell everyone about you. Yeah. Like I don't, why doesn't everyone in Amarillo know about you? Why does it, I want to tell everyone in the world about you. Like, I'm so proud of you. And so over those three days, I just became so proud of the people that I was around and the people that I called friends or business colleagues and just kind of wanted to go to the tallest mountain and cheer them on. And it was funny because I was riding in a car with the senior content editor at Inc. And he's, and he got emotional actually. And I was like, are you okay, John? And, he goes, Reagan, I got to admit, you know, I was one of these Yankees that when you told me I was going to have to come to Amarillo, I didn't know what we were going to find. And I really doubted what was here. He said, but these people are amazing. Hmm. They're really incredible. They're brilliant and they're kind and they're tender. And, you know, I've, I've drank the Kool-Aid like I'm in. And he goes, but there's one thing I've noticed. And I said, what is it? And he goes, you know, what resonates throughout all of these people is that everyone's so humble. And he goes, and I know it's just kind of from, you know, the morality of the community and the values and no one's going to be braggart or anything. And, you know, we're all doing the hard work. He goes, but while the humility is really appealing, he said, it may be your biggest detriment hmm. because you're not cheering yourselves on you need to be applauding the stories and the people in your community. And so when we launched our campaign to the community, we had kind of a launch dinner and we actually gave everyone cowbells because we said, look, you, you know, Amarillo needs more cowbell. We need more people celebrating what's happening here. We need more cheerleaders. You know, at the time there was a lot of kind of crazy stuff happening in the community and there was a lot of negative talk about what was happening in Amarillo. But for every one possibly negative story. There were 10 great stories that needed to be told. Yeah. And I had seen them all up close and personal and I didn't know how to get those stories out. So when you approached me and said, Hey, I kind of have this idea. I was like, yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I was sold pretty quickly just cause I wanted everyone to know what happened here. Even the people that live here that have no idea what's happening here. I sure. want them to know and appreciate it. Did you think that you know we'd be here two years later still doing it? I mean, did did you see it as a long term kind of thing? Like mm, like maybe I saw it sure. and I wasn't real yeah. sure. You know, I was like, well, I let's try this and see if it works. I know, but yes and no, maybe. I mean, I believed in it because I knew all the stories that could be told. Did I think everyone else would embrace it the way they have? No, not really. But sometimes you just got to go for it. Yeah. Um, and I knew you and I knew the type of material you would produce and, you know, maybe if it had been someone else and I didn't believe in them the way I believed in you, I may not have been so gung ho, but I knew there was content there outside of just what I knew. And so I think I wanted it to be successful. Now I'm 
excited that we're a hundred episodes in and every week I still think that there's people I want to tell you to go interview. Yeah. Um, you know, and that just shows that there's so many good things happening here that people don't know about. I mean, I listen to your podcast and hear about different people and different things. I'm like, wow, I had no idea that was happening in Amarillo. And it's a fun way to hear about it because it's not just some Facebook event post or some business you kind of hear in passing. Like you hear the people and the passion and the backstory behind it, which makes you really want to support them more and more. Yeah. And I think a lot of the people maybe that we even talked about at the beginning as people that would be great yeah. to interview you know, are on a list that I have yeah. that I still haven't made my way yeah. through because in the process, I keep finding more and oh, more people. I know, I know, which is great. you know. And I think my kids laugh at me because I'm the person that I'll go to get ice cream or go to the grocery store and I'll end up talking to total strangers. And by the time, you know, the kid at United that's packed my groceries has taken me out to my car. Like I know his whole life plan just because yeah. I talk and ask questions. But I think so often we forget that there's stories behind the people we meet. And if we slow down long enough to find out about them, gosh, it's just amazing what people are capable of and what they've done. And I think that's what I really enjoy about what the podcast is. And um, even what we did with the ink campaign is just learning all of this stuff about the people that we live around. This week's episode is sponsored by Bivens Point. Most of my podcast listeners probably won't think about senior healthcare at all until it's time to help their parents or their grandparents make those kinds of decisions. So when that time comes, turn to Bivens, a long-trusted name for senior healthcare in Amarillo. Bivens Point is a wellness community that offers rehab and recovery services, long-term care, and the BeFit Outpatient Therapy Clinic for senior adults. You can learn more by visiting BivensPoint.org. That's point with an E at the end. This episode is also sponsored by SKP Creative. Now, I'm a social media professional, and if I've learned anything over the past decade, it's that social media changes all the time. Strategies change, the platforms themselves change. It's a lot for businesses to keep up with especially a lot for them to try to handle on their own. That's why you need to talk to SKP Creative. They develop data-driven social media strategies to help your business grow and thrive. Visit skpcreative.com today to learn more and schedule a free social media evaluation for your business. SKP Creative, make it happen. Okay, I'm back with uh, Reagan Hales of the Emerald Economic Development Corporation. Reagan, this is uh, part of the show I call Eight Straight. As you know, I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Mm -hmm. Your job is to answer those in whatever amount of detail you want to. Okay. So let's go to the first one. What's your favorite building in Amarillo? Okay, this may sound corny. A lot of my answers are going to be kind of corny. <laughs> Only because you've so, described them as I know, corny. So you forgive me. Okay, my favorite building in Amarillo isn't because of the architecture, but it's because of what happens in there. And it's actually the research building at the School of Pharmacy on the Texas Tech Medical Campus. Okay. Um, when I worked there for a couple of years, you know, I met a lot of the research faculty that are here in Amarillo. And when you start to learn about what they're doing and you get to go in and see the spaces where they're doing this tremendous amount of research, research that's actually going to affect people that we know and love, I think it just, it blew me away. And, it, and so to see that space and see the investment that the university has made into it and all the potential that it has, and now... Once the pharmacy school gets paired with the vet school, just the tremendous amount yeah. of discovery and innovation that's going to happen in those walls is amazing. Okay. So that's 
kind of my favorite place. That's yeah, that's a, not an answer yeah, I expected. No, I know. What's your favorite local coffee shop? I'm going to say the Palace shop over here at Summit. Okay. I love the fact that you can go and grab coffee. I always see 100 people I know there. But the way that it's configured with Amarillo National Bank, right. I mean, we've rented out their business spaces and had meetings and I've recorded webinar. podcast yeah. episodes there. Yeah, I just love the kind of sticky space that it is um, from a design perspective where you can grab coffee with a friend. There's all these students studying. You can have a business meeting. I really just like the flow, the ebb and flow of that. And I love the fact that they get creative with their menu and change things up yeah. and donate to nonprofits, you know, soft side of yeah. me. But, so I, I love that space. Okay. What's your favorite Amarillo restaurant? I'm going to preface this by saying the only time I ever go out to eat is when we have people come into town or when I'm exhausted okay. from work and I have to take the whole fam out. So I've got three kids. So there's places I would like to eat and then there's places I get to eat. Those are different. But when we have people come into town, they always either want barbecue or they want Mexican food. And lately I've been taking everybody to El Tejavon okay. right off I-40. It is so good. Yeah. They've got really spicy salsa, which I love spice so the hotter the better yeah. and i just love their food and service is great so every time i take out of towners in there they just love it what does this area have too much of risk aversion okay unpack that a little bit yeah and this is kind of probably just stemming from what i do in the edc and things that i see and trends i think amarillo from a business perspective is pretty risk averse. Like we really like a sure bet. Right. We like to know that if I invest in this, it's going to happen or this is a proven method and someone else has either failed or succeeded. And, you know, I want to put place my money on a winner, which I get completely. But, you know, we don't, you don't grow if you're not pushed or stretched or try. Um, you know, I, I think failure is a good thing. I definitely think you learn from failure. I yep. don't think we allow our kids and our students to fail enough because, you know, when they get to be adults, if they've been taught that you can't fail, then they In don't. The first they're time. Not, yeah, they're not willing to innovate. So I think a lot of times we have a lot of people that are really, really risk averse. And it's not because of anything other than that's just kind of a general philosophy. And so I think there need to be just a little bit more risks taken in different ways. What does this area not have enough of? So I will kind of go back to my answer about Palace. You know, I travel a lot and end up in different cities and different places. One thing I wish Amarillo had more of are what people call sticky spaces Mm -hmm. where you can work and you can grab lunch or grab a drink or have a business meeting, you know, kind of these multi-use spaces um i think and i really wish we had more of them just to me because they foster community and culture and i think a lot of times in amarillo we kind of end up in our silos like we're able to kind of divvy ourselves up from our neighbors a lot and so i wish we had more of these sticky spaces whether they were patios at restaurants that flowed into shopping or at parks where you had kind of some multi-use spaces. But I wish we had more of that because I think it would really encourage a lot more community activity and just develop our culture out here. It doesn't necessarily have to be a a coffee shop. No, like the community market to me is a great sticky space. Um, So you have people selling products and you've got 
um, musicians and people selling food. And so you mix and mingle and you learn different things about people and products in your area. And you know, it creates a culture that people love and, and swarm to. So I wish we had more of that. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Because that, well, that's, that's literally part I of do. your job. Yeah. I know. So what's, what's the, the short elevator pitch that you have? I know. Well, and a lot of times you kind of got to think about who you're selling it to. Am I selling it to a business person or am I selling it to their employee that right. they're wanting to come and live here? And I think if I was selling it to their employee that wants to come and live here, you know, a lot of times we're talking to people in major metros, you know, the Atlantas, the Los Angeles, even the Dallas, you know, people or where we're trying to recruit students to come work. And to me, Amarillo is that place where you can find a high quality job, a great place to live and have the time in your day to enjoy them. You know, you're not stuck in traffic for two hours. I mean, I have family that still lives in Atlanta and all my friends and Atlanta is a great city and there's a lot going on, but they're not going to drive two hours yeah. from their home to downtown to go out to dinner. You know, they, if they can't get there in two or three miles, they're not going to go enjoy it. But in Amarillo, you know, I can get on the phone with a friend of mine after work and get home in my 10 minute commute. And while they're still in their car and tra- in traffic and, you know, after work, so I can get home and see my kids and, go for a walk and hang out with my dog and cook dinner and do all this stuff and still have time. So it's just a place where you have the ability to enjoy all those things in your life, you know? Okay. That's a good pitch. Mm -hmm. When was the last time you went to Cadillac ranch? I think it was like three or four years ago. I think we took my nieces and nephews out there to spray paint the cars. Mm -hmm. They live in Washington state and they were kind of old enough to where it was something fun to go do. And they came into town and we took them out there. Okay. No. So it's not a regular thing then. No, with no, but we tell people we just had a company in last or a couple of weeks ago um, that were visiting Amarillo for a site visit for a project, and they were in a hotel on the west side of town. And we said, "Hey, you got to drive by there. You need to go do it." And I think they actually went out there. Okay. So yeah. And the last question: What's your favorite kind of Amarillo weather? Oh, the fall. Love the fall. I mean. I say that except like last night I was walking my dog at eight thirty, and it was beautiful. Yeah, and I was like, man, I love these late night summer walks. But you know, I love the fall. I love being able to be outside. Um, I'm a runner, so I can get up in the morning and not have to put on all my layers. Right. So I can get up and go run, and you know, you can be out in the evening with the kids and go to football and. But it gets cold, and you know, sometimes it's chilly. I like being able to have four seasons, yeah. but fall hands down. Okay. Well, that concludes the uh, eight straight questions. Reagan, I like to end by asking my guests to endorse something related to the area. So I, I know that's literally what your job has been mm-hmm. for the last few years, but what's one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience? Okay. I'm going to plug something that's been plugged on here a dozen times. Okay. Go for it. Refugee language project. Okay. So I met Ryan Pennington kind of when he was kicking off Refugee Language Project. He was one of those people that called me. He actually knows my pastor, David Ritchie. Okay. David and I had met at a meeting, and David recommended that he call me, and we went out and had lunch, and he was asking kind of how to get it started, and he didn't need my advice. He knew what he was doing. But um, when he told me about what he was working on, I just knew that I wanted to support it. Again, I'm that person that talks to everyone at the grocery store, and I've met a lot of refugees that work at United, 
and I just want to help them. I mean, these are people that have these amazing lives. That yeah, they speaking up of and people left. with good stories, oh and my interesting gosh, backgrounds. Yes, and so we've ended up getting paired with a Congolese family, this husband and wife that came over with their three kids, and they've become my friends. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I adore them and really want to help see them succeed and integrate into the community. And you know, my daughter loves to play with her kids. I mean, we have a blast with them and. And I think what Ryan's doing through that project and um, is just incredible. I mean, he's giving dignity back to these people that they had lost for a while. And so if people can get involved in that in some way, shape, or form, I just encourage them to do that. Okay. Reagan Hales, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to SKP Creative and to Bivens Point for sponsoring the show. And thanks especially to Reagan Hales, not just for the interview itself, but also for supporting this podcast since way before the first episode ever released. You can learn more about the AEDC at amarelloedc.com. Thanks also to my friend Angelina Marie for editing the podcast every week. Executive producers of Hey Amarillo include Corey Burns. Wilson Lemieux, Jennifer Callahan, Katie Linger, Patrick Burns, Daniel Davis, Josh Wood, Neil Nossiman, Ryan Pennington, Wes Reeves, and Criselda. Hey, next week is our 100th episode. You can celebrate with me by rating and reviewing this show on iTunes and by telling a friend about it, about the show, not about your review, although you can do that if you want to. My name is Jason Boyette. I'll see you next week. <laughs>